Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. We're thrilled to welcome Tom Insel, former director of the National Institute of Mental Health and co-founder of MindStrong to the show today. Thank you once again for joining us. Uh, to help host this episode, I'm joined with my colleague, Sasha Aramina. Uh, let's kick things off, Tom. Can you share a brief intro with us? Sure. Uh, delighted to be here, Chaz. Thanks for including me and Sasha. Great to have you along as well. Uh, I'm a uh, a neuroscientist and psychiatrist, and I've been uh, in a range of different kinds of roles over the years from being an academic, uh, doing a lot of bench science in, in the general area of social neuroscience. Uh, also did some clinical research in the day and um, probably best known for the 13 years I spent as the director of the National Institute of Mental Health, as you just mentioned. Uh, left that post in 2015 to move to California, where I um, started working at Verily, just as Verily was emerging from Google X, it was originally called Google Life Sciences, uh, before we came up with the V uh, part of the alphabet, the Verily. was there for about a year and a half, uh, left to um, help launch uh, MindStrong, and uh, left that after a couple of years to work with um, the state of California working with Governor Newsom on uh, trying to create some new initiatives for behavioral health in the state. Uh, and in the meantime, I've been involved now with uh, launching a couple of other companies, including recently a company called Humanest, uh, and being an advisor uh, and a board member on a range of others, uh, Compass, Valera, um, Alto, and I'm sure I'm leaving out several, but uh, I've had a chance to traffic in both the uh, public sector and private sector now and um, really interested in all of those roles in trying to move the needle uh, for people with mental illness. Thanks once again for joining us, Tom, and, and giving us some context for today's episode. Um, if you help our listeners here, you've had some amazing experiences across your career and quite a varying a uh, number of roles that you, you've held as well. Um, help us tie those together. Um, what's been your North Star, uh, the common thread, if you will, amongst your work? Yeah, it's, uh, it's shifted, I must say. I think for many, many years as a scientist, my North Star was trying to understand something about how the brain 
was uh, mediating complex social behavior. Uh, and that was an obsession for about two decades for me. And I worked really hard on um, trying to understand the neuropeptides, oxytocin and vasopressin. And um, it, to call it an obsession was not an overstatement. I, almost everything in my life revolved around those two neuropeptides and what they did and where they worked and how they worked in the brain. Uh, I'd say for the last couple of decades, it's really shifted to much more of a public health quest. And the North Star has really become now, how do we use science and evidence uh, to inform policy that can actually make a difference for people with mental illness, and particularly those with serious mental illness, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, severe depression, uh, about 14.2 million people in the United States who have what we call SMI or serious mental illness, meaning that they have a mental illness that is disabling. And for that group of people, uh, we have not done well. Uh, they, I think to be kind, their, their outcomes are no better now than they would have been 30, 40, 50 years ago. And so my North Star for the last really the last two decades has been, how do we have an impact um, to change that scenario, to reduce suicide, reduce disability, uh, improve recovery, improve outcomes uh, for that population? Tom, as we talk about kind of the, the future you painted ahead, um, one fun question we always like to ask our guests before we kick off episodes here uh, comes from Dennis Gabor, electrical engineer and recipient of the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. Um, he, he says the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Can you share with us what does inventing the future mean to you? Right. So I'll, I'll answer that question through this particular lens of trying to figure out um, how we can make a difference and, and have the biggest impact for people with mental illness. And, and I think the part of the answer starts by asking why we haven't done better in the past. Where have we let that population down and where have we failed them? And I, I think it's a particularly interesting problem because we actually have good tools. We have pretty good medications. We have really good psychotherapies. We have rehabilitative interventions that we've had for uh, for four or five decades, we've known how to do this, uh, but we haven't been able to deliver. And so where the future plays out and where we can invent a different kind of future for that population, in part has to do with technology. And it's not the whole story, but coming up with ways that uh, help us to solve the three major impediments to progress. And they're not the ones you might think of. Most people will say, oh, you know, the problem is access. You can't find a psychiatrist or, hey, you know, we, we just, um, we, don't, we don't have good treatments to offer. I, I don't think either of those are entirely true. And I'm not sure that they're really the explanation for why we failed. For me, it comes down to three places where we need to change the future. And one is around engagement. So part of the problem why we haven't done better 
for people with these illnesses is they're, they're in jails and prisons and homeless shelters. They're in lots of places, but not in care. They're not engaged and they're not, not, they're not really getting the things that we know are gonna be most helpful. The second problem is really a problem of quality. When they do engage in care, what they get isn't great. Uh, it's, it's, it's usually based on a crisis. It's very episodic. It hasn't really been woven into a continuum of care that allows them to create a, a life for themselves. And the third part, and this is where technology really can make a huge difference is, is what I call the accountability problem. We don't measure outcomes. Um, we do this really well in, in many areas of medicine, but not in mental health. There's been uh, almost uh, you know, a, a, huge, uh, a, a, a huge reaction against uh, creating the kinds of measurements that let us know when we're doing better, when we're doing worse. And as a result, we don't learn and we don't, we don't alter care uh, according to outcomes. There's no feedback. Uh, that's a huge problem in this field um, that while we all sort of pay attention to subjective experiences of our patients, uh, there's not enough of a development of objective tracking of how people are doing in a way that lets you know early on uh, when they're beginning to get better, when they're beginning to get worse. And that's a really important issue in this field because while subjective experience is critical to be able to collect that and understand that and to be able to, to listen carefully to what people say and to what they don't say, uh, we know by definition that mental illness is all about that kind of disconnect between subjective and objective experience or subjective and objective data. And that's all the more reason why we ought to be able to do both. We ought to be able to collect um, the kind of objective data that your phone has that um, would be available on, it, on any good wearable. Uh, it, even kind of monitoring sleep and activity and social interaction and all of that is critical for this accountability piece. It's critical for being able to understand um, at an objective level how people are doing, which we just have not taken into account uh, in the mental health space. So those three things, I think when I, when I think about inventing the future, it's fixing the problems of engagement, quality, and, and accountability. Thanks, Tom. Uh, I'll pass it off to Sasha here to talk about mental health and the ongoing crisis we have at hand. Thank you very much for explaining the current state of mental health as, as, as a, both a field of um, research and uh, the services we can provide for patients in need. To set further context for today's discussion, I'd like to take a step back and ask you to please outline how um, did our understanding of mental health change over the past couple of decades and arrived to um, what we think of it today. Yeah, well, you know, there's a big difference between mental health and mental illness. And I'm going to start by, by shifting the question first to mental illness and to talk about where the world is uh, scientifically in understanding depression, anxiety disorders like PTSD, schizophrenia, the whole range of problems, OCD, eating disorders, all of those. And I think it's fair to say that we've gone through a fairly big transition conceptually in how we imagine or how we how we understand those problems. Uh, 
and probably the you know historically the best way to think about it is we went from a point of uh, in the mid 20th century thinking that these were all fundamentally psychological problems where we were very focused on on the mind and not so much on the brain to then shifting to thinking about the brain and not so much about the mind. Um, the latter part of the 20th century from about 1975 to maybe 2000, the whole focus was on the neurochemistry and, and thinking about these illnesses as a chemical imbalance. Uh, and that partly was driven by where we were with the science and the science at that point was very much about the discovery of new neurochemical families, neuropeptides, the whole range of new neuro neurotransmitters, all of that. The last couple of decades, I think we've really moved away from that. The, we don't think of the brain so much as a chemical soup. We think of it much more as a information processing uh, computer. You think about it almost as a computer. It's a, it's a circuit driven organ and which what you really need to understand if you want to understand a mental illness is what circuits are involved and how are they involved and what's, where are the disconnections, where are the arrhythmias of the brain that are associated with obsessive compulsive disorder or eating disorders or addictions or any of these. So that shift has been, I think, fundamental because it says, oh, then it's not just about changing chemistry. It's not just about adding a little more serotonin or, uh, or goosing dopamine a little bit in a particular part of the brain, we need to be thinking about um, how, how these circuits work, how we measure that circuitry and, and how we modify that circuitry. And so that's introduced neuromodulatory therapies. It's introduced ways of thinking about even uh, cognitive and psychological interventions as being targeted to particular circuits that can begin to change behavior and actually become treatments for for mental illness. So, so the, I don't know that we'll stop there. I think we're, you know, this is always evolving and we tend to understand the brain um, with the tools that we have and the tools as the tools get better, I think our models will get better and we'll, we'll get closer and closer to whatever the fundamental lesions are that cause somebody to become psychotic or to become depressed. Um, but clearly we're in a very different place than we were, let's say two decades ago when it was all about finding another drug to alter serotonin neurotransmission. Uh, we're in a place that's, I think, much more sophisticated in some ways, um, but it's also pointing to the fact that there's no magic bullet and that there's probably not gonna be a single intervention, whether that's a neuromodulatory one or a, a, a medic, medical chemical one that is necessarily gonna do the job that that we want, these disorders are likely to be far more complicated than the kind of model we often have, which is born, you know, borrowed from infectious disease where you've got a simple bug and you find a simple drug and you can cure the problem quite quickly. Uh, that's just not the story with most people who have struggled with a mental illness. Mental health, as I say, is something quite different. And I think one of the issues that we have to begin to talk about when we talk about health is to realize that it's, it's not just about health care, uh, that in the United States in particular, there's been this tradition of assuming that um, health care is a, or health is a health care problem. Uh, increasingly, I think, as you look at outcomes in a 
broader perspective, what you see is not only for mental health, but for health in general, uh, that a relatively small amount of the variance in outcomes is explained by the access or quality of healthcare. Yeah, it explains some part of it. Uh, and, and many people who've looked at this carefully would say maybe 10%, maybe 20%, but a larger fraction of health outcomes, and this is true for mental health outcomes, have to do with lifestyle, has to do with um, where you live, how you live, who you live with, a bunch of factors which um, are not really determined by healthcare. They're outside of healthcare. This becomes really an important issue when we talk about mental health, because for mental health care, so much of it has been focused on reducing the symptoms of a particular mental illness, important to do, and totally insufficient. We increasingly are beginning to think about what we would call a recovery model, particularly for people with serious mental illness. That is that what they need for mental health as opposed to mental health care is not just more medication. It's gonna be a whole range of factors that are often outside of the healthcare system. Uh, I was, um, I've written a book about this, which I'd love to talk about called Healing, Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health. And so much of the book is about just this point that if we really want to bend the curve for morbidity and mortality from serious mental illness, we've got to start thinking about these kinds of recovery models. And, and what is that? You know, what, what are the things that really matter there? I, I summarize them as the three Ps. The three Ps are people, place, and purpose. Social support, environment that is safe and nurturing, and having a reason, having a purpose, having something to live for, probably the most important way to reduce suicide and prevent suicide is to give people something to live for, give them a mission. And those three Ps are generally not part of mental health care, but they're absolutely vital to mental health. Thank you, Tom, for, for outlining both the, the history of the field and um, hinting towards the, the reason for the current mental health crisis we're experiencing at hand. Um, as mentioned by Chaz and by yourself, you've spent uh, a lot of your career as, as a researcher and uh, you've established and led, led several uh, big initiatives working in um, the neuroscience and mental health fields, such as Center for Behavior Neuroscience, and um, the National Institute of Mental Health. So um, why, in your opinion, despite the many research efforts, um, have life sciences not really solved the mental health crisis? Oh, that's such a great question. It was actually the question that got me started on the book, because I was trying to wrestle with this conundrum that in the years that I was at NIMH, 2002 to 2015, we just saw a revolution in the science underlying our approach to mental illness between genomics and imaging and cognitive science. Um, it was just this extraordinary golden age. And it was such a privilege to be part of it and to help to fund um, 
some brilliant work, super creative and innovative work going on mostly at academic centers around the country to really transform the way we think about the brain and how the brain mediates behavior. Um, part of that was uh, President Obama's uh, brain initiative, which I got to be part of. And, and that was really about creating the new tools that we need. And so I was trying to understand this fundamental question, which is why over those years, when we had so much progress in science, we had so little progress in public health. In fact, during those same years, there was about nearly a 30% increase in suicide mortality, a um, massive increase in drug overdoses. Uh, probably in those years, it was about a six-fold. It's gone on to become more like a 12-fold increase. They, no evidence of any decrease in morbidity, that is in disability from serious mental illness. That is, we didn't see an increase in employment. Um, in fact, what we saw was an increase in incarceration and an increase in homelessness for people with schizophrenia. So how do you square those two things? Massive improvements in progress in science and yet no real change. In fact, maybe a deterioration in the real world uh, for people who are struggling with mental illness. And to make matters even more complicated, if you look at it objectively, you'd have to say that the evidence was there for us having more treatments and having more people in treatment than ever before. So how does that work if we've got better science, better treatments and more people in treatment? How is it possible that we're getting worse outcomes. That's why I thought I've got to figure this out and started the book to try to understand that. And I think the answer is that um, there's not just one answer, but part of the answer is that it is true that for people who are on the front lines of providing care, they have the sense that they're doing better than ever before. They have access to better treatments and they have a sense that those treatments are, are working better than uh, whatever they've done in the past. So they see people improving. The problem is most of the people who are struggling are not in care. They're, they're in they're in jails and prisons, they're on homeless shelters, they're on the street, they're in somebody's basement. Um, actually a relatively small fraction of people with serious mental illness are in the care system. We, we estimate that on any given night, there are probably 10 times more people with serious mental illness in the criminal justice system than in the public mental health care system. Um, and that's why even though when you talk to providers, they say, oh, yeah, yeah, we're doing great. You know, this is like, you know, as a former president of the American Psychiatric Association said, this is the golden age for psychiatry. We are able to help people better than ever. Uh, and and in, in a sense, he's right. But um, people aren't buying what we're selling. They're not in the care system. They're not actually... Uh, 
the people that we're seeing that, you know, they, we really have this kind of uh, two worlds that we're living in. One is the world of mental health care where, yeah, some, some good things are happening. And the other is the world of mental illness where um, people are generally not in care and are struggling uh, and dying much earlier than they should, not getting medical care for things that are very treatable and not getting mental health care for illnesses that are also entirely treatable, um, which is one reason why they continue to deteriorate and, um, and don't recover. So I've struggled a bit with trying to understand this conundrum. Uh, and I, I think part of it is that lack of engagement, the fact that we've got these two completely separate worlds that don't connect. Um, I think it's also true that um, when they do connect, we're not focusing on the right problem. We're focusing on short-term reduction of symptoms and not long-term delivery of recovery. And, and it's really the recovery model as well as the medical model that need to be developed together to be able to actually get the kind of changes we need um, and to take the science that we've got and be able to deliver it in a way that makes a difference for the people who need it the most. Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. So Tom, given the challenges you've outlined, um, which we face uh, in translating uh, fundamental research um, into the actual practice uh, for supporting uh, mental health patients, there is definitely room for discussion. Um, will technology lead to better outcomes for people with mental illness? And what do you think are the changes to the mental health ecosystem which are necessary to foster this um, really positive, potentially positive new effect of new technologies coming to the market with this aim? Well, I think the technology is, is a huge promise here. Uh, it's been hyped, and I think we need to be a little more sober about what it's going to do and when it's going to do it. My own belief is that we're kind of in the first chapter of a, of a maybe six, seven, eight chapter book, and we're still trying to figure out what, you know, what problems technology is going to solve and which problems it's not going to solve. I, I think it's, for me, it's often best to start with a very clear definition of the problem and what it is you want to fix. Um, so I mentioned before the problem of measurement. And I think that's a place where technology can do really well. If what we are trying to understand is how people think, feel, and behave, that's something that um, you can get a lot of help from the data you are collecting passively or sometimes actively on wearables, on phones, on laptops, and in a whole range of ways 
that's so much better than what we've done in the past, which is um, this kind of very episodic and somewhat burdensome way of asking people how they feel. Um, again, that's important to do, but it's insufficient. So technology will help us on measurement. I'm, you know, whether you call that digital phenotyping or whatever, you know, whatever lens you want to look at, simply being able to do better with um, collecting things that we keep asking about, whether that's sleep and social activity or, or a movement. I mean, letting, you know, even knowing whether someone has a tremor when they're on an antipsychotic drug or on lithium, maybe that's really helpful to be able to collect objectively. It's also the case that uh, so much of mental health is about listening to people and, and deconstructing what they say and interpreting not only what they say, but how they say it, and sometimes what they don't say. Uh, and certainly the tools of natural language processing and LP are going to be really helpful in providing objective evidence for the kind of hunches and feelings and, and responses that clinicians have. Um, and ultimately, we'll get to a point where it will kind of like Waze, you know, or, or Google Maps, it will allow someone who doesn't have a huge amount of experience to operate with the tools uh, that could allow them to be like a master clinician. And we've seen this in other areas and I think it could happen here as well, allowing um, an emergency room nurse or a social worker in the field uh, to navigate uh, with just tremendous uh, decision support and tremendous insight. So I'm pretty, pretty excited about what could happen with those kinds of tools. Uh, not all of them have been developed, but many, many companies are in that space trying to develop them. Uh, it's also the case, as I mentioned, that it's not only about accountability, that we also need to look at uh, engagement and quality. And, and, you know, that is, engagement is what uh, social media companies have done too well. They know how to get people involved and keep them involved. We need some of that. We need more of that in mental health care because as I mentioned before, for a lot of patients, they're not, they don't buy what we sell. And we have to figure out how to meet them where they are, how to give them what they want and how to keep them engaged in their own care by giving them a lot more agency and a lot more empowerment. And wow, I mean, that is a place where um, there's so much to learn from uh, social media companies and companies like Amazon that have figured out how to deliver goods and services in a way that people find convenient and, and empowering and they, and they love it. They like it. We need that. And the set, that third bucket besides accountability and engagement was around quality. And I think we don't talk about this very often, but, but technology can really help us with training the workforce. And we have a real need to do that. Um, we have good evidence-based psychological treatments. But most of the people who are calling themselves psychotherapists today aren't using them, either because they haven't been trained or because they were trained and they haven't kept up. You know, there's no real um, maintenance of the of a skill set. Uh, so uh, that's a place where being able to, to train to a higher level of quality um, is, you know, technology can certainly deliver on that and I think can help us with 
not only the training, but the coordination of care, the continuity of care, all of that. So, you know, connecting providers, connecting providers and patients and all, and that whole world of telehealth, what I like to call telehealth 2.0, which is not just the connection, but improving the connection with quality measures, with additional measurement in real time, all of that is where that, you know, where we're going in this field and technology is going to take us there. It's never going to, um, I don't think it's ever going to get us um, to a point where we don't need um, the human touch as well. As I mentioned, yeah, I think NLP is great for deciphering what people say, not so great for deciphering what they don't say. And a good clinician learns as much from what somebody hasn't said as from what they have said. So we're going to need good clinicians. We're going to need people who can sit with patients at their most vulnerable moments. Um, so technology isn't all of it, but it's going to be a lot of it. And it's going to, I think, ultimately give us a way to use clinicians in a much smarter way and help them with um, to make much better decisions and also help them to make decisions with patients in a way that's shared and, and far more um, successful than what we do today. Yeah, wow, all this uh, huge unmet need and it's been so multifaceted really explains the, the boom of both the technologies um, working in this space, but also the investment supporting the development of um, these technologies. Uh, we know that in the US alone in 2020, this market had um, over 120 investment deals with the cumulative capital of 1.5 billion. And that's just in the US, it's over 2.4 billion wor worldwide. Um, so um, how do you think has the explosion of the um, venture capital investment influenced um, the mental health uh, crisis? Well, I don't know that it has had a huge influence. I think it's, uh, there's a lot of activity and a lot of companies, as you say, and actually the 2021 numbers, we don't have the full year, of course, because we're not, we're still in the fourth quarter. But if you look at the first three quarters of 2021, we're going to easily surpass 2020. It looks like we'll, um, we'll blow past, I think we already have blown past $3 billion in investments. And the big change in 2021 is um, there are a lot more big deals than there were in the previous years, uh, we now have companies going public or exiting in various ways. We have lots of mergers happening. It's a really exciting and a little bit of, a, I'd say, chaotic time in the in this venture market for mental health startups. Uh, I do think that they have solved or they've helped with some of the problems during the pandemic. So companies that have allowed um, patients to find uh, clinicians uh, have solved an important problem. Um, I, I, and I'm, I don't wanna uh, downplay that too much. I just think we need to understand that uh, if you wanna change outcomes, it's more than just providing access. You have to provide access to something of high quality. And it's not clear to me yet that simply by um, making sure that more people get access to more providers, 
that in this space, in the mental health space, that that's going to be enough to improve outcomes or to improve population mental health. Maybe. I just haven't seen the data that supports that idea. And I'd be much more interested in seeing um, venture capital investment move towards questions of quality and not just questions of access and scale, which is where so much of the money has gone. A lot of that, if you, you, know, you look at the companies that have done really well, they're, they're following what I think makes business sense, which is the market of uh, employer-insured populations uh, where there has been a big problem of, um, of access, of you know, meeting, kind of closing that demand supply gap. Uh, I, I come from a place where I ask um, a question that's really more of a social justice question, which is who's, who's innovating and who's investing in the innovations that we need for those people who have the greatest mental health problems that they, they, they're often not employed. So they're not gonna have employer-based insurance. Um, they're uh, people who are often not even yet in healthcare as we've been talking about. These are, you know, these are the 14.2 million people with serious mental illness. And of those hundred plus companies that have launched in the last couple of years, with VC support, very, very few of them seem to be interested in that part of the population. And you could say, well, you know, they're, they're, they're like Willie Sutton, they're going where the money is, that makes sense. You know, that's what you'd wanna do if you're in this business. Except that in the case of mental health, the biggest single insurer is not, it's not United or Humana or Cigna or Aetna. It's 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 actually Medicaid, um, Medicaid and Medicare, and the VA. You know, these public sources are well over fifty percent of. I think they're almost two thirds of the investment we have nationally in the treatment of mental illness, particularly for people with serious mental illness. Um, the problem is that it's been really hard. To, to connect the dots between the, this hot VC market and the needs of people in the Medicaid space. Um, it could be done. Uh, it hasn't been done yet. I think we have to get really smart about uh, alternative payment models for people in the safety net, for people in the public mental health space. Uh, but my goodness, shouldn't we be doing that? I mean, shouldn't we be asking how do we take our most innovative entrepreneurs, people who are able to build cool stuff and solve hard problems and get them to work on the hardest problems, the ones that are the most costly for the nation, the ones that are really the, the most, in some ways, the most difficult to solve. Uh, and those are the problems of people with serious mental illness. So, you know, coming up with the tools for for crisis response, coming up with the tools for continuity of care, coming up with tools that help to train a new workforce of peers and, and, and mental health workers so they can do home visits and meet people on the street where they are. All of this stuff could revolutionize the way that we help people with serious mental illness. I don't see it. I don't see it happening from any of those hundred plus companies with that uh, two to three billion dollars in in venture capital backing. Um, they're working on on problems, but t 
to me, not the most significant problems that need to be solved. I hope that some listeners of um, our podcast could consider um, going into this field, um, having listened to to this call of yours. Um, You did mention that um, very often we don't really reach um, the people who are in the most need for uh, mental health um, services. But um, the COVID-19 pandemic has really exacerbated mental health across the board. And there's uh, a lot of data collected through different platforms. Um, an example we have uh, from a platform called Kuth uh, shows that self-harm tendencies of their users increased by some 23% in 2020. So um, uh, could you comment on how the um, ecosystem um, and if it has adapted to the pandemic and uh, really provided better support um, for um, very different people in need? Well, it's so interesting to see what's happened uh, in the pandemic. Um, And I'll break that into two parts. If you look at where the mental health needs are, they are just so different from where where the virus has had its biggest impact on physical health. So, I mean, it's it's really unequivocal that the the deaths and the uh, the greatest number of hospitalizations have been in people over 55. But the mental health consequences have been largely in people under 25. Uh, and it's this interesting kind of separation where you've got people who have lost jobs or been uh, had to leave school or become socially isolated and that has just been far more devastating for um, for the younger part of the population than for the older part Um, that's not to say that older people haven't been affected psychologically but if you look at uh, the data from cdc the data from um, many of the epidemiological studies that have been done um, you really see this impact in people under 25. Uh, that's where the big increases in anxiety and depression have gone have been. So that leads to part two, which is so what what has the field done? You know, what has the care system done in response? And this is a place where I think entrepreneurs really have uh, risen to the occasion. I think that uh, you're seeing lots of companies coming up with solutions that are working really well. I'll, you know, I generally don't talk about individual companies, but I think it might be useful to give you just a couple of examples of companies that were not even on the map two years ago or a year and a half ago, pre-pandemic, that have, um, have come up with really interesting approaches that make a difference. So a company that I've been part of called Humanest, which is working in the college um, environment, to create the, the kinds of tools that allow kids to get access to care within minutes instead of having to wait weeks, which they would through the College Counseling Center. Um, just because that population, that college population has been so heavily hit by this. Um, another example, a company called Cerebral, which has been direct to consumer 
marketing of medication and therapy did not exist uh, really two years ago. Today is serving over 200,000 people, mostly, but not exclusively, young people during the pandemic who many of them were not in treatment before uh, and maybe couldn't access care today. Uh, but um, because it's D to C and it's digital, uh, they're able to, uh, to get access. There are, I mean, there literally are hundreds of companies that have, um, that have sprouted and are responding by providing access to care. As I mentioned before, quality has maybe not gotten enough attention, but uh, certainly the access problem, I think, has been addressed because the demand is so much greater than it ever was. One last thing about this is that you hear a lot of people in this space who it almost always comes up when I, whenever I talk about how we failed to um, reduce morbidity and mortality for people with mental illness. I always hear this. People say, oh, because of the stigma. And I really don't like that term. But most of all, I think that it's no longer that relevant. For people under 25, uh, stigma is not the issue. They are very comfortable seeking care. Their problem is in finding high quality care. And this is a place where I think uh, having startups that can address that and that are really focused on quality and not just access can really make a difference. They'll democratize care. They'll make sure that um, as long as you have internet access, um, you can have access to something that really could make a difference in the moment when you need it. And um, I, I just think we always have to, you know, whatever concerns people have about, about that, you have to use as your, um, as your standard, your comparison there, where things were two years ago, three years ago, five years ago, when um, it was really difficult um, to, uh, to find a psychiatrist, psychologist, a therapist, uh, wait times of, of weeks and months. Um, and uh, that's a problem that's gotten could have gotten incredibly worse with the pandemic to some extent. It's still a huge problem, but this is a place where uh, entrepreneurs and startups have begun to uh, really buffer uh, this by increasing the supply uh, to match this massive increase in demand. It's um, really good to um, hear that the response has been positive and I, I hope that it just keeps going uphill. Um, I'd like uh, to spend the last few mi um, minutes of the podcast um, uh, talking about uh, your uh, current work in, um, in the space of uh, mental health. And um, as you mentioned, you're really um, focused on um, bringing this topic to um, being discussed in a wider audience. Um, you're about to publish your new book, um, Healing Our Path from uh, Mental Illness to Men Mental Health. And at the same time, um, you've started a nonprofit publication called uh, Mindsight News. So um, could you please tell us about your mission and how it's realized in, in, in these two projects? Well, Sasha, it really is a mission. I mean, part of what came about from writing the book, I, I started the book saying, you know, we got this 
crazy conundrum that we've made so much progress on the one hand, and yet outcomes are no better. Um, and I was thinking that technology is the answer. Um, and, and I was in a series of companies where we were really trying to develop the tools to solve that problem. Um, and I, in the course of writing the book and spending a lot of time traveling around California and visiting jails and prisons and clubhouses and homeless shelters and all of that, I began to realize, well, there's, there's not going to be an app for this. Um, we've, we've got a much bigger problem that we are going to have to contend with. And I began to feel that what we were looking at was not just a mental health crisis. It was a social justice crisis that it was like, um, in a word, it was like we were in the Jim Crow era for people with serious mental illness, not just that they were, uh, left off the bus or at the back of the bus, but nobody even knew uh, how bad this was. And so in writing the book, I began to describe just with some outrage, just how un, in, how much injustice there was for people who just have fundamentally a brain disorder and yet were not in care and weren't getting treated for things that were entirely treatable. As I was finishing the book, I thought, well, this is great um, to sort of ring the alarm bell, but how far is that actually going to go? Um, and who reads books anymore, anyhow? So I began to think of the book more as the flagship for what was needed, which was a social movement, like the civil rights movement or the movement for marriage equality or the movement for climate change, What you know, whatever your favorite example would be, that we needed to really increase uh, public awareness about a serious and yet solvable problem. And so um, I was approached by a friend who was a journalist who had been thinking about starting a, um, a, a digital publication, Mindsight News, that's, that's Mind, S-I-T-E, News. Uh, and uh, together with a couple of other journalists, we began to uh, map out this idea of having a daily newsletter, a weekly news roundup of the research uh, that was most relevant. Um, and deep dive journalism, some of which would be more investigative, some of which would be solution focused, but becoming kind of this indispensable source of information for people who care about this area. Uh, it tells you something that nothing like that has existed. I mean, nobody has bothered to do for this area what Inside Climate News has done for climate or the Marshall Project has done for criminal justice or STAT has done for biotech. Um, and so we felt like uh, if we really want uh, to begin to have the impact that we need here, we need a platform. And so that was the founding of Mindsight News. It's a nonprofit. It's um, where we launched about a month ago. Um, and so it's, it's live and uh, anybody who wants to look at it, www.mindsightnews.org. Uh, please subscribe. It's free. Uh, we've got subscriptions for both the, the daily uh, news as well as the weekly research roundup. Um, and uh, we're also looking for people who want to contribute great content. So we have a space there for lived experience, a space for entrepreneurs who have great ideas. Uh, and um, of course, we're always looking for support as well, because it's a nonprofit that exists on philanthropy. I launched this using the um, they advance from my book. So because they really have very much the same mission, 
Uh, and the hope is that between the book and the digital publication, uh, and now a lot of things that are happening in the world of advocacy and policy, um, that over this next uh, several months, we'll, we'll really begin to see the emergence of a new social movement um, that will ultimately really um, help people who are not getting the attention and the resources they need. Thanks, Tom. I'm really lo looking forward to um, seeing more people subscribe and, and be a part of, of your mission. Thanks again. I'll um, pass this to Chaz now for some uh, closing thoughts and questions. Thanks once again for joining us, Tom. It's been a fantastic episode here. Uh, a few rapid fire questions before we come to a closing to cap things off. Um, given your vast array of experiences across the mental health ecosystem, would love to learn from you. What advice would you give to entrepreneurs, researchers, or medical professionals aspiring to address mental health crisis today? Yeah, I, you know, I think the, in one sentence, which is kind of how my book ends, I would say that it's important to remember that the problem is medical. These are brain disorders, but the solutions are social, they're environmental, they're political. There are many other things beyond the simple medical model. It's important to define that problem clearly and carefully, but we can't lose sight of the need for solutions that extend beyond the classic medical model. And that's really the recovery model. Um, so I think that's the piece that I most wanna convey uh, even to people who don't read the book. Tom, we've talked a lot about the challenges in mental health uh, in the field today. Would love to flash forward um, as we look ahead to hopefully a, a brighter, better future for, for patients, um, can you help describe perhaps 30 years from now, we'll look ahead to mental health in 2050, uh, paint us a picture of the landscape, where will we be? You know, it's so interesting. Uh, the picture that I have of that landscape is, is a really old one. Um, and it was... Uh, painted in 1963 by President Kennedy when he talked about the community mental health movement that he launched and that he funded. Uh, it was the last thing he did, uh, last bill he signed before he was assassinated. And um, he signed it October 28th, 1963. And, and in, the, um, in the ceremony for signing the bill, uh, he, he had a phrase which I thought was really interesting. He said that with what we know today and with what we're committed to do, that uh, people with mental illness um, should no longer be alien to our affections or separated from our community. Something like that. I may not have had the words exactly right. But that is precisely what I would see for the future. Uh, we haven't been able to deliver that in these last, what has it been, 58 years. But um, let us hope that with what we know now, what we know how to do uh, with the commitments we can make, that indeed people with mental illness will no longer be alien to our affections, that they could have a full life in the community. Meaning that um, instead of having 80% unemployment, they will be 
a rate of unemployment that would be no different than for those without mental illness. Instead of uh, having very, very high rates of incarceration, our jails and prisons would have the same fraction of people with mental illness that you find outside of jails and prisons. Um, and, and meaning that um, people with serious mental illness don't die at age 55, 58, 60, but they live a normal lifespan, uh, just as you would expect for someone without a mental illness. That's entirely doable. None of that is a fantasy. We could do that today, but we have to make the commitment. And, and my hope for the near future is that we make the commitment and for the longer term, 20, 30 years out, is that we see the fruits of that in the, the idea that people with these brain disorders uh, fully recover and have a life in the community just like um, they and their families would dream of. What a brilliant vision. I hope we all can aspire to here uh, in a fantastic conversation today, Tom. Would love to ask uh, any closing thoughts uh, or, or shameless plugs as we uh, <laughs> wrap up here. <laughs> well, the shameless plug is to uh, pre-order the book. The book's not available until February 1st, but you can pre-order it now um, from Penguin Random House or Amazon or anywhere else. Um, it's called Healing, Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health. And please, please, please subscribe to Mindsight News. Um, we're, we're working so hard to bring stories that um, are not getting enough attention to the world. And um, it, it just breaks my heart that even with all the work we do, people still don't see that. Um, so we're trying to make sure that we spread the word and uh, get more and more people subscribing. Thanks again, Tom, for an incredible episode. We're very grateful for your time. Appreciate you once again joining us. Well, Chaz and Sasha, uh, thanks for what you do. It's uh, been wonderful being with you. Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.